So Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to ask you the question, do you think our world has become a more peaceful place over the last 70 years? Since the Queen's coronation, has there been a, an increase in peace around our world and a decrease in war and conflict? Let me phrase the question slightly differently. How optimistic are you about the next 70 years? Do you think that peace will spread across our world, that weapons will be laid down, and that conflict will cease. The United Nations, who um, started in 1945 following the Second World War, has this as their mission statement, the maintenance of international peace and security. The maintenance of international peace and security. That's something we want, that's something we long for, but we can also see how far away we are from achieving that goal, can't we? We're now over 100 days into the conflict in Ukraine, a conflict that's been rumbling on in that country for, for decades and centuries with no end in sight. Or we think of the news this week of another conflict that has been rumbling on for years and years between Israel and Palestine. And again, where is the peace? Where is the resolution? Or we read about a man with a gun, opening fire on a classroom full of children, taking lives, devastating families, and affecting generations. How hopeful are you about the prospect of peace in our world? The Queen once remarked in one of her Christmas speeches that the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, is an inspiration and anchor in her life. 
And I want to show you this morning from the Bible that the news of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can alone provide real hope, true hope, not just for individuals, but for the whole world. We can be incredibly optimistic about the future of our world, not because we hold the answers as human beings, but because God does. He himself has promised to deal with the wars in our world because he can deal with the war that rumbles on in every human heart. Now, if you're new to church this morning, you're you're very welcome, as Nathan said. And let me invite you, perhaps for the first time, to consider with me the life-changing person of Jesus Christ. This is what we do every week at church as we hear the Bible together. We think about who Jesus is and what he's done. And we're going to see today from our chapter in Isaiah that Jesus offers light for a dark world, that he offers peace for a broken world because he is the king of the whole world. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's start by thinking about Jesus who is the light for a dark world. Now, this book we're looking at this morning, the book of Isaiah, was written around 700 BC, and it was written during a time of crisis for God's people, Israel. They were in crisis because of their own, a crisis of their own making, because they turned their back on God. Let me just read a description from chapter one of Isaiah, um, which is on the screen. Here's how the people are described in chapter one. We read there, woe to the sinful nation, ah, sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. This is how the people are described. This is what the people are like. They've given themselves over to sin and corruption and they have rebelled against God. They are at war with their God. And so when Isaiah talks about the darkness, as we're going to see in our passage, he's talking not just about the external problems in our world, but also the problem of the human heart, the darkness that is in the human heart. And this is why Israel are in crisis. As a punishment for their rebellion against God, for turning their back on him, God is going to raise up the mighty nation of Assyria. Isaiah says in chapter 7 that the Assyrians will swarm the Israelites like bees. They will settle in the rocks and in the ravines, ready to invade and destroy. So this is the crisis for Israel at this time um, of writing. They're stubborn and rebellious, and they're on the edge of destruction. That is why Isaiah describes this time as a time of darkness and and hopelessness. Just look at the end of chapter 8 with me in verse 22. End of uh, chapter 8, verse 22. Isaiah says, Then they, Israel, will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness, and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, it's at this moment of desperation at the end of chapter 8, at a time when it seems all hope is lost, when it seems that darkness has engulfed the people, that we have the words of chapter 9, the verses we're going to look at this morning. So have a look at verse 1 with me of chapter 9. Nevertheless, nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Here is Isaiah's promise of a great reversal 
We see these kind of things in, in films all the time, don't we, where the hero hangs on the edge of a cliff, destined for destruction, and then the situation is reversed. A hand reaches down, or a helicopter conveniently flies by at the right time. Well, this is Israel's reversal. At a time in the future when they're groping around in the darkness, lost and desperate, suddenly a light dawns. The God of Israel will act. The people are given hope. On the other side of destruction, a light will dawn. The people will rise from the ashes. And God will turn the distress of this people into delight. Have a look at verse 3, at the delight that comes. You, God, have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. What a contrast between the distress and gloom and darkness at the end of chapter 8 and now rejoicing and joy here in chapter 9. Isaiah says it would be like the time when people rejoice at the harvest. Now, I think that's quite a hard picture for us to have, you know, in the age of... Hovis and Warburtons and supermarkets being stocked with food on the shelves. But harvest time um, at this time, and, and also in many places around the world, was a time of great joy. Imagine, after laboring for months to till the soil, to plant the seeds, to nurture the crops, after much hard labor, finally the harvest is here, and the people can eat. They can survive for the next few months. Harvest was a sign of life. It was a sign of joy. It was a time to rejoice. That's the kind of joy that God's people will experience. But Isaiah piles on the metaphors because he also says it will be a time like when people rejoice, warriors rejoice when they've enjoyed the victory and they can enjoy the plunder and they're dividing it together. It's the joy that comes on the other side of victory when the battle is won, when the enemy is defeated and the spoils of war can be enjoyed. Israel will rejoice because God is going to do this for them. He will reverse their situation And he will invite them to enjoy a victory that they have done nothing themselves to win. Light will dawn in a dark world. Hope will come for a hopeless people. But why? Why do the people rejoice? What is it that God will do for his desperate people? Well, this brings us to our our second point this morning. He will bring peace for a broken world. Peace for a broken world. Look at verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Verse 4 describes what it's like to live under foreign oppression. It is to be burdened by a yoke with a bar across your shoulders being beaten with the rod of your oppressor. That's what it was like for the nation of Israel when they were living in the land of Egypt earlier on in their history. And that is what it will be like when they live under the rule of the Assyrians and the Babylonians later in their history. But God promises that he will shatter the yoke that burdens them. He will shatter the bar that lies heavy across their shoulders and he will shatter the rod that is used to oppress um, his people. Here is a promise of liberation from, uh, from oppression. And oppression, remember, that is the result of God's, uh, the rebellion of God's people. It is because Israel have refused their God that God has handed them over to their enemies. But there is a time that is coming when oppression will end. And therefore, it also must be a time where that rebellion is dealt with and their wickedness is forgiven. But verse 5 promises more. Did you see the promises of verse 5? 
a promise of international peace and security, brought about not by human effort, but by God. Look again at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be tossed into the fire. Every weapon will be thrown away. Every piece of military clothing will be done away with. Every tank will be sent to the scrap heap. Every nuclear weapon will be decommissioned. Why? Because there's no more use for it. No more war. No more conflict. No more bloodshed. No more battles to fight. This is the promise that God speaks to his people. He promises a time when light will dawn in a dark world and where peace will spread to this war-torn world. But we're left with a question, aren't we? With several questions. How will God do it? When will God do it? Can he do it? We know that in our world, uh, peace normally comes through the use of more power and more violence. So we hear of the Ukrainian forces and government, for example, calling for more weapons from the West in order to outgun and outmatch the advancing Russian armies. Or the threat of nuclear warfare is combated by the production of more nuclear weapons to balance out the threat. We're so used to victory being achieved through power and might. Is that the way God will win his battles? Is that the way he will establish peace? Well, this is where God's wisdom is so different to our wisdom and where his ways are much greater than our ways. Because the answer to all of the longings of Israel, and not just Israel, but the whole world, are here in verse 6, where we see a king for the whole world. Here is God's solution to all the problems in our world. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Do you feel the sense of surprise and shock at this verse? Isaiah says that a child, a son, will be the one to restore the world to how it was meant to be. A child not just born into the world, but given by God to his world. He will be the answer to all of the world's deepest problems. All of God's purposes are here concentrated down in verse 6. At one point in history, in one act, and one child. Now that might sound crazy, but look with me at what we learn about this child in the, in the next couple of verses. Have a look again at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now these are promises fulfilled hundreds of years later in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the promised child of God, the one on whom all the hopes of the world are placed. And so I want to ask you as we look at these verses, what do we learn here about the coming King Jesus? What will he be like? What will he do? Well, we learn, first of all, that he is a king who will rule forever. He will rule forever. Verse 7, we see of the increase of the government, his government and peace, there will be no end. Every human reign will one day end, but his rule will stretch out for eternity, for all of time. We see towards the end of the verse that he will establish the throne of God's kingdom from this time on and forever. 
There will be no need to appoint an heir. There will be no need to secure his succession because he will be God's eternal king. He will be king forever. He'll also be king for everyone. Do you see in verse 6 that it's not a government, but the government that this king is given? Not in one geographical place, but the government, which is God's government over the whole world, over all people for all time. He is an everlasting global king. Now, I wonder how you react to hearing that, an everlasting global king. Maybe you react with fear. Maybe negativity. When there's a change in regime in our world, we, all, we always want to know, what will it be like to live under this new ruler? We see it in governments and nations all the time. Will it be better to live under this ruler than the last one, or will it be worse? Well, what about King Jesus, the one promised by God who will rule over all people for all time? What will his kingdom be like? What will um, he be like? Well, we learn that we can embrace this kingdom of God's king because this king will rule perfectly. He will rule perfectly. Look at verse 6 and how he's described. Firstly, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Israel's history was one of failed kings, wicked kings who could not rule God's people well, kings who made foolish choices that were disastrous for themselves and for God's people. But this king will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be a wise king, fair in his dealings, and the people who live under his rule will be glad that they do. He will also be called Mighty God. Israel's kings failed because they were people. They were tempted to rebel against God, just like the people were who they ruled over. But this king is Mighty God. He is God himself coming down to rule over his people. He will thirdly be called Everlasting Father. Now, this image of father is used later in Isaiah chapter 22 to describe an earthly king who leads and protects his people. So for Jesus to be called everlasting father is for him to be the eternal protector of his people, the one who sacrifices his own needs for the sake of theirs. And he will be called Prince of Peace, a fitting title for the one who will do, verse 7, extend peace to every corner of of the globe as his kingdom takes over the world. So here is a promise, God's promise of a perfect king, God himself, who will uphold God's kingdom with justice and righteousness and who will bring peace to this broken world. Do you see how these promises would have brought about an incredible optimism and longing for God's people as they heard these promises Um, at the time of Isaiah. They were facing the threat of an Assyrian invasion at a moment of crisis. And beyond that, um, Isaiah talks of the coming Babylonian invasion, who were a nation just as brutal and unforgiving as the Assyrians. The people were living in wartime, and they were hearing a promise of peace. And the key question that faced the people at this time was, would they trust God's promise? Who or what would they trust in? Would they trust in the things of the world, or would they lean their confidence on God and his word? That's a question facing us too this morning. As we live in a world that is dark and desperate in so many ways, as news floods our minds of more bloodshed and more war and more conflict, will we lean on the promises of God? I think we're often drawn in, aren't we, by the solutions that our world offers to our biggest problems that we face. We lean on education, we lean on organisations, we lean on 
um, new inventions. We lean on powerful leaders. We lean on the promises of government or big business or influential charities. And yet these verses are God's call to trust in the coming child who will grow up to be a king, who is the only answer to our world's deepest needs. It's a call to trust not in the wisdom of the world, but in the wisdom of God. I wonder if you noticed um, the last sentence on the other page um, in, in our Bibles at the end of verse 7. When we hear that these promises of an eternal king who will establish worldwide peace will be achieved by the Lord, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We work, don't we, and, and we work and work to try and solve the problems we see around us, and yet we continue to be trapped in a never-ending cycle with very little progress made. Generations come, generations go, and our world remains largely the same. And yet the Lord Almighty, who made this world, promises to restore this world to how it's meant to be through his king, and his zeal will accomplish it. And so as we conclude, I want to pose this question to you. Has Jesus Christ, the promised king in Isaiah chapter 9, actually achieved what seems impossible? Is Jesus really the answer to our world's deepest needs? Because here we are, 2,000 years on from the life of Jesus, still living in a world of war, where boots continue to march, where garments continue to be stained with blood, and where death continues to cast its shadow. Has Jesus done anything to fix the problems that we see around us? Or has he simply come and gone, leaving our world in exactly the same state as before? Well, to answer that question, I want to uh, draw your attention back to verse 4 and a line that we skipped over there. Um, Verse 4 of chapter 9. As in the day of Midian's defeat, God is going to bring about his victory. As in the day of Midian's defeat. What is the day of Midian's defeat, you might be wondering? And what does that have to do with the victory that God is going to bring about for his people um, over the whole world? Well, the defeat of Midian is recorded in the book of Judges in the Bible when Gideon, the leader of God's people, squared up to the Midianite army. Gideon came out to battle the leader of God's people with 22,000 foot soldiers to fight the advancing Midianite army. And this army was described, the Midianite army, as like locusts. Too many to count, spread across the land. And here was Midian with a small army compared to them, 22,000 men. But God said to Gideon, you've got too many people to fight this battle. You've got too many men to fight this war. And so he told Gideon to send back nearly all of his army until he was left with just 300 men to fight the advancing Midianite army. Here was a tiny army against a huge enemy, And the victory was won by God through Gideon. God was teaching his people at this time that he would win their battles, not through human might and human wisdom, but through a display of apparent weakness. And God promises to work again in a similar manner, as in the day of Midian's defeat. He will defeat an enemy even greater with a plan that seems even weaker. He will shatter oppression and restore peace, not through more violence and more power, but through the birth of a child. When Jesus arrived on the scene 700 years after these promises were made, God's people expected him to match power with power and defeat their enemies. But instead, all of the world's forces were against Jesus, 
and they plotted together to have him killed. When Jesus approached his death, people mocked him for his claim to be king. He was clothed in a purple robe and beaten by the soldiers who would then hang him on a cross. A sign was fixed at the foot of the cross where he died, and the sign, on the sign were written the words, the King of the Jews, an ironic description that they thought would make mockery of this king. People walked by, hurling their insults, mocking him for his weakness, turning away from him in his shame. Here was the self-professed king of the world, God's king, dying a humiliating death. It was a day of weakness and a day of shame. But as in the day of Midian's defeat, God was again working through apparent weakness to establish his plan and to bring about victory. Because King Jesus, as he was shedding his blood on the cross would bring an end to all the bloodshed on this earth. The cross of execution actually became, for Jesus, the scene of his coronation. Because there on the cross, God was dealing with the deep darkness that plagues our world. He was there dealing with the war that goes on in every one of us, not just in the conflicts we see around us, but the war that is in all of our hearts. All of us naturally live in a state of rebellion against the God of the universe, taking our stand, digging our trenches, trying to live life without him. And when Jesus died, he paid the price for our warfare against God. He suffered the death that our rebellion deserves. He dealt with the root problem, which is the cause of all the other problems we see in our world. He then rose from the dead to take his place as the exalted king of God's world, and he promised to return to establish peace forever in a renewed world. It is through the birth of a child and his death as a man and his rising again and his coming again that peace will be established across our world. So let me ask you again, how hopeful are you about the prospect of peace? How optimistic are you about the future? Well, if our confidence rests on the wisdom and power of people, then we're right to despair. But if our confidence rests on Jesus, the King of the world, the Prince of Peace, then today we can enjoy peace and reconciliation with our Creator God. And we can know with certainty that we will be part of his eternal kingdom of peace that will last forever. As we today celebrate 70 years of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, the one who served us for so many years, let me ask you, will you look beyond her to her King, Jesus, and will you rest your confidence on the Prince of Peace? Let me pray that we be doing that together. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen um, today in your word, the Bible. We thank you that you gave your perfect son to this world to rescue us from our rebellion against you and to restore this broken world to how it was meant to be. Heavenly Father, we long for the day when marching boots will stop and every garment rolled in blood will be thrown into the fire. We thank you that that day is coming and we ask that you would please help us to rest our confidence in Jesus and to surrender our lives to our rightful King. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.